If you want to grab your Bible and turn to the book of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. As always, I know we stand a lot, but um, this is just giving reverence to the fact that this is more than a book. This is the living and powerful Word of God. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, And he began to speak to them in parables. And he said, A man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower. And he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. But when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others... Some they beat, and some they killed. But he had still one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. You can be seated. This weekend, um, uh, Ronnie and I were supposed to go on a motorcycle ride. We were going to be bikers. <clears throat> we were supposed to go on a motorcycle ride, and we were going to Woodstock, Georgia, and we were going to watch the Harley dirt track races, and I mean, we were going to be rugged and rough this weekend. And um, the weather didn't cooperate, and so we decided, well, we'll take our wives on a good, nice spa date. And so since we were already supposed to go somewhere, we thought we'll just get them, and we'll go on a... Nice spa date, and uh, we'll let them enjoy the weekend. And so we ended up at a vineyard. um, It was called Chateau Elan um, Winery and Resort in uh, Brazelton, Georgia, I believe it was. And um, I got there, and as I was laying there on my um, massage table with my head down in this little round hole, because I never had a massage before, and so I'm laying there, and they're, they're sitting there, and they're putting oil down your arms and down your back, and they're massaging and rubbing, and I'm laying there, and I'm thinking... I'm a biker, I'm a biker, I'm a biker, I'm a biker. Didn't take long to convince me that I'm not a biker, never have been. <clears throat> but I like to think that away. But when we pulled up in the, um, in the vineyard, we, we, uh, it was a beautiful place, and it used to be 3,500 acres of grapes is what it used to be, and they've downsized tremendously. But uh, they still had a lot of vineyards, and uh, they had just pruned the place whenever we come in. 
And so uh, we got to go on a tour of, of their pruning process and we got to go and, uh, and see how they actually took the grapes and they made the wine out of it. And so it was a, it was a great learning experience. And, um, but one of the things that I learned in the process of that was that there is a specific time that those grapes have to be pruned and there, there is a specific way that those grapes need to be pruned in order for it, for the vine to produce the, the greatest quality of grape and the greatest quantity of grape. Also, depending on the, the taste of the wine that you're looking for, they want a particular pruning process to take place in order for the particular taste that they're looking for. And so um, one of the things that I learned was in 2013, I don't know how many acres of grapes they had then, but they brought in a completely new um, tenant for this place. And he was a renowned winemaker, a great award-winning winemaker. And they brought him in in 2013, and they were going to um, let him change their process. And so he came in, and they said he wiped out all the vineyards. He took them all, and he wiped them out. And he replanted and redid everything. And ever since 2013, they have won award after award after award. They have become, um, let's see what it was. They are the most awarded winery on the East Coast for the last three years. They have garnered over 300 national and international awards. Now here's the thing about it. I'm not up here marketing for this winery. But what I am doing is trying to make a point to you that in order for a vineyard to be successful, then you have to have the right tenants in place. You have to have tenants in this vineyard that understand the process and have everything they need in order to produce the top quality grapes to make award-winning wine. And this is something that, that is all over Israel. There are vineyards everywhere in Israel. There are vineyards all over Greece and Italy. And so whenever Jesus uses a story to try to, um, to get a point across to who his hearers, it is no surprise that he uses something that they are very familiar with, and that is the need for good tenants in a vineyard. And so he tells this story. To give you just a little context of what's going on here, Jesus has triumphantly entered Jerusalem. We're in Passion Week right here. Now, I know we celebrated Passion Week a few weeks ago, but right today, where we're preaching from, this would have been somewhere around Wednesday of Passion Week or Holy Week. And so Jesus has triumphantly entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on Monday. And then he has heard the people proclaim him as the Messiah and praising him as they sing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then he moves from triumphantly entering Jerusalem to um, uh, clearing out the temple. And then he goes to Bethany. And while he's in Bethany, which is just right over the top of the Mount of Olives on the other side, and so he wasn't far from Jerusalem, but I would imagine he went for his time of prayer like he always did in the evening time on the Mount of Olives. And then he went down from the mountain and spent the night in Bethany. And while he is in Bethany, he's hungry. And he finds this tree that he sees from afar off that is supposed to be a fig tree. 
And now from afar off, this tree looks like it has figs on it. It has green leaves. And, and, and him and his disciples are excited about finding this tree because they're hungry. And they get up to the tree and upon further inspection, they find that there are no figs on this tree. And some of you may be familiar with the story. You'll know that he cursed the tree. And he said, never let fruit grow on you again. And a lot of times you ask the question, well, why in the world? I mean, did he, he's God of all the universe. Did he not know that there was not fruit on the tree? Yeah, he knew. So what is he doing? Well, when you study the book of Mark, there's one thing that, that's important for you to know. Mark writes in a certain, um, a certain form. They call it a Markin sandwich. Now, here, here's what you need to understand. If you want to know what a certain part of Mark is saying, then you need to find the meat of the sandwich. Because in order to find out why he did what he did, if you can find the meat that is sandwiched between the two pieces of bread, then you can understand why this is happening and why this is happening, but not before you find this. This parable is the Markin sandwich. This is the meat of the Markin sandwich. And so what is happening here is that Jesus is looking at Jerusalem and the reason he goes into the temple and he, he clears it out, the reason why he rides in on a donkey triumphantly as the king is because he's establishing that the ones who are supposed to be in authority and guiding the people of God are not doing their job. And so he comes in establishing that he is the authority that he is the true and rightful king. And then he comes into the place where the religious leaders are supposed to be guiding the people and producing the fruit, which is the temple. And he finds that it is loaded with thieves, money changers. And so he goes in and he establishes authority there and he drives the money changers out and he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. And then he's with his disciples and he sees the fig tree that is supposed to be producing fruit. And it looks like it's producing fruit, but when you get up close to it, there is no fruit. And so he uses this as a teaching opportunity for his disciples and he curses this fig tree and he says, never let fruit grow on you again. And when they come back the next morning, they see the fig tree, and guess what's happened? It's withered away. It has been destroyed. It is no more. And the disciples look at it, and they're amazed. And then, whenever Jesus comes back into Jerusalem, these people have set back up in the temple again, and they are back at their regular business, and Jesus comes back in, and He drives them out again. And He establishes His kingship in this temple and then he begins to teach for several days and as he is teaching in this or teach for this day and as he is teaching in this temple there is a question that is raised of authority in um, Mark chapter 11 verse 28 this I'm just giving you the context here Mark chapter 11 verse 28 this is where we're at he's in the temple and he's teaching and they said to him by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave this authority to you to do them? And so here's what's happening. He's come in, riding on a donkey, listened to the people declare him as king. 
He comes in and he clears the temple out and he says, you've turned the house of prayer into a thin of thieves, but I'm here to turn it back around. He comes in and he curses the fig tree and he says, never let fruit grow on you again. And now here he is in the temple, he's cleared it out again and he is teaching in it. And so now the chief priests and scribes, they're saying, okay, who gave you this authority? Because listen, we are the ones that have authority here. We are the ones that are the tenants of this vineyard. They don't have the, the analogy yet, but they're fixing to. And so they ask him a question. Or Jesus asked him a question. He says, listen, here's what I'll do. If you can tell me whether John's baptism was from heaven or from man, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. But if not, I'm not going to tell you anything. And so they begin to talk among themselves and they say, well, wait a minute. If we say that John's baptism was from heaven, then he's going to say to us, well, then why didn't you follow him and why didn't you believe him? And then we're going to be trapped. But if we say to him that his baptism was from man, then the people are going to be mad at us and they're going to want to stone us because the people believe that John was a prophet. And so we're stuck here. And so they look at Jesus and they say, we're not going to answer you. And Jesus looks and says, and I'm not going to answer you. And then he moves from that question of authority and he goes into this teaching of the parable. Now typically when Jesus taught parables, he taught in parables because he didn't want them to understand. Go with me to Matthew chapter 13, verses 13 through 18. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 13, He said, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, in parables they see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. They understand, but they don't understand. They think they understand because they see the worldly side of it, but they can't see the spiritual side of it. This is why I teach in parables. And in verse 14 of Matthew 13... He says, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. In other words, God knew their heart before they were born. And so He has already established that it is going to be taught in parables to fulfill the Scripture that they'll hear it, but they'll never understand it because they don't want to believe it anyway. They don't want it. And so God's going to let them hear it, but not understand it. And this is the purpose of parables. He says, um, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. In verse 15 it says, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their, eyes they can barely, with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes. He's talking to the disciples here. But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So hear then the parable of the sower. Here's what Jesus was doing when he spoke in parables. He wanted the ones that weren't going to hear it anyway to just not be able to understand it. And so he told a story. A lot of people think Jesus told parables so that we could better understand it and so that we could have an earthly story to relate to a heavenly meaning. And there is a little truth that that is what a parable is. It is an earthly story with a heavenly or a spiritual meaning. It is. 
But that's not why he told it. He told the parables because he didn't want them to understand. Because they didn't want to understand. But to the ones who desired to understand and to the ones that God knew their heart and He knew where they would stand and He knew that they would believe, He told it in a way that they would understand. And so parables were meant to explain to those people in a way that their eyes could see and their ears could hear. This is a secret language that God put into place is all that it is. And so whenever this parable is told, He tells this parable in the context of authority and wanting the authority here to judge themselves to look at all the things that they were supposed to be the kings and the ones that were guiding the people, but they weren't. They were supposed to be the ones producing fruit, but they weren't. They were supposed to be the ones teaching and leading and praying in the temple, but they weren't. And so now he wants to move into a story to cause these people, these religious leaders, to examine themselves. And so let's see exactly how he does that. Remember, he wants this parable, and as you read it, I want you to think about this. He wants this parable to horrify them. Now you think about the story. You've read the parable. Now you think about it for a minute. If this were a true story, and to a certain degree, it is in the spiritual realm. But even if this were a physically true story and we were talking about grapes in a vineyard and we were talking about a man who owned it and we were talking about him sending servant after servant and they killing them and we're talking about him sending his own son, his beloved son, not a son that he wanted to get rid of, his beloved son. And we're talking about them killing him and it were a true story. I heard a story um, Friday night. We were in our small group and we were talking and, and, and Lee or somebody was telling about the little boy that got crushed in the back seat and he was calling 911. My heart just broke. I, I couldn't, I, I wanted her to just quit talking because I couldn't, I couldn't take the pain of thinking about that happening to a child. I couldn't handle it. Going to bed that night, my mind was just in agony because I I could not stand the thought of something like that taking place. This boy on the phone with somebody and nobody can get to him, it, it, it broke me. And if something like that breaks us, then how much more would a story like this of a man that kept sending and kept sending and kept sending and then he sends his son and they kill him? So this story was told so that they would be appalled and horrified at it. And they were. Let's read it and see how it plays out. And, and as we do it, I want you to think about what Jesus is doing. Because this is the only parable, the only one, that they actually perceived and understood. Every other parable Jesus told was meant so that they wouldn't understand it. But this one, He leads into it in a way that He wants to give them a little understanding... But then he wants to hide a little from them. And then he wants to bring it out at the end so that they see with their eyes and so that they see that this horrific feeling they feel toward these tenants is actually themselves. And so watch how this unfolds. It says in chapter 12 verse 1, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug a pit for the wine press. He built a tower. He leased it to tenants 
and he went into another country. And this was typical. This is the way that there was, this is the way it still is. In um, the winery we went to, the vineyard we were at, the Chateau Elan, the people who worked this, the tenant that they hired, the winemaker they hired to come in and do it, is not the person that owns it. The person that owns it lives in another country. And so he bought it and he hired this guy to do it and this is typical back then. And then here's, here's he's given everything that's needed to produce good fruit, to produce good wine. He's provided the plants. Remember he planted the vineyard. The owner did, not the tenant. The owner has provided the plants. He's provided the security. He put a fence around it to keep wild animals and to keep people that don't belong out of it. He put a tower in it as a watchtower so that they could see any danger that was coming. And so he's provided all the security that is needed. He's provided the tools. He gave the wine press. He dug a vat. They would literally find a stone in the ground and they would dig out holes so that in one hole you would be stomping and pressing the grapes in the wine press. And then there would be a channel for the juice to be able to run through and fill up the vat. And so that's what it means here whenever it says that he dug a pit for the wine press. And so he's provided all the, the plants, all the security, all the tools. He's even provided the tenants to come in this place. And typically the, the tenants received a pretty good deal. They ate and drank from the fruit of the land. So they didn't have no expense outside of the place. They had everything they need to live inside of this vineyard. They typically received somewhere around 25% of whatever the vineyard produced. And so this man has produced, has, has provided everything for this vineyard and all they have to do is work it and collect their 25%. That's it. They have no expense in it whatsoever. Pretty good deal. And so they, they get to enjoy the goodness of this vineyard. And so Jesus tells this story of this vineyard owner and he does it as a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 through 7. Go with me to Isaiah 5 because I want you to see where Jesus is coming from. And in Isaiah 5 this would be very familiar to thee. So when he started this out... The, the religious leaders would have known that Jesus is talking about Isaiah 5, but then he adds a little bit to it that Isaiah don't add. Because remember, he wants to throw them off a little bit so that they're horrified and so they don't connect the spiritual meaning right away. But in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, a very fertile hill. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choice vines, he built a watchtower in the midst of it, he hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? I've done everything. I've provided everything. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord... Who does the vineyard belong to? The Lord is the house of 
Israel. So here Jesus is channeling Isaiah's prophecy and he takes them back and he wants to understand eventually that when I'm talking about a vineyard, I'm talking about the people of God. When I'm talking about the vineyard owner, I'm talking about God and everything He has done for His people. And then he goes on and he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are His pleasant planting. They're the plants in the vineyard. And He looked for justice, but behold, He found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, there was an outcry. And then we go into the list of woes. In other words, we see a list of curses that are going to come upon them because of them not being good tenants of the vineyard and not bringing forth good fruit for the owner. And so Jesus wants these religious leaders to connect it, but He adds another part to the story and He wants it to horrify them so that they judge themselves first before they connect it back to the spiritual meaning of it. So let's see how He does it. Go back with me to Mark chapter 12. The story tells us in verse 2 that when the season came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from him some of the fruit. But instead, in verse 3, they took him, they beat him, and they sent him away. Now think about this for just a minute. The owner has provided everything. They eat of the land, they don't have to go anywhere, they have no expenses, and they get 25% of it just for enjoying the goodness of the owner. And instead of giving him his due, what do they do? They take his servant, they beat him, and they send him away. Now God means for, Jesus means for this to strike a chord of injustice in these religious leaders. He means for them to look at this and go, who... What kind of people would do something like this? These tenants have been given everything and now it's time to give the owner his due, but instead they beat the servant and they send him away. So what does he do? Well, the owner sends an army to destroy him right away, right? That's what I would do. Ain't that what you would do? But instead, in verse 4, it says, Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head. They literally bashed his head in. And they sent him away and treated him shamefully. And so now he sends the army of people to destroy it, right? Alright, see what happens next. In verse 5, And he sent another, and him they killed. What do you think about this owner so far? Speaks volumes for this owner, right? So now he sends the army and now he destroys the, the tenants of the vineyard, correct? No. No, but instead, look what it says next. It says, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So the owner sends servant after servant after servant. Some they beat, some they kill. Matthew's account of this story, and we're, you're going to need to look at all three of these, but Matthew's account of this story adds that they beat one, they killed one, they stoned one, and they did the same thing to all the others that came through. One after one after one. He kept sending and kept sending and kept sending. And they kept beating, they kept destroying, they kept smashing heads in. They kept stoning. They kept killing. Finally, in verse 6, 
he had still one other. In other words, he'd done sin everything he had, right? But he had one other. He had a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. He's my son, right? I mean, they would never hurt him. Now, don't get it twisted. Jesus is not saying that God sent him to this earth because he thought that we would respect him. Jesus knew before the foundation of the earth were ever created that this was going to have to take place. That's the reason he's telling this story the way that he is. Verse 7, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. There was a law in the Talmud of the old Jewish law. There was a law that said if a tenant owner's heir died, then whenever the tenant died, whoever the, or whenever the, the owner of the vineyard died, whoever the tenants were, by law, received the inheritance. It would have been theirs. And in verse 8, And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now what do you think happens at this point? Because here's what Jesus wants to do. He wants him to think about this. So in verse 9, he asks a question. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Now Mark doesn't tell us this, but actually at first they answer this question. So go with me to um, Matthew chapter 21, verse 40 through 41. We're going to read this part of the story that Mark doesn't include. Matthew 21, 40 it says, when, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And what does it say next? They said to him. So they answered him, right? They answered him and they said, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruit in their seasons. His plan has just unfolded and it's just worked. He meant for them to judge themselves first without connecting this thing back to themselves yet. And so he asked the question. He says, now that you hear this story, what would the owner and what should the owner do to these tenants? And they say, he ought to kill those miserable wretches. He ought to string them up. He ought to burn them at the stake. He ought to cut their throats. He ought to, do, he ought to tie them to the electric chair. He ought to do whatever the worst thing he can come up with. That's what he ought to do to these miserable wretches because they don't deserve anything. And then he ought to take the vineyard and he ought to give it to somebody else. He ought to let somebody who actually appreciates what he's done for them. He ought to give it to somebody who actually loves him and actually will, will, t will, will be grateful for what he's done for them. That's what he ought to do. So it worked. His plan is working. They're appalled. They're horrified. They're shocked at these tenants. And they say, put them to death. They're miserable wretches. And give that vineyard to somebody who appreciates him. But then Jesus wants him to open their eyes to the spiritual meaning. So he quotes Psalm 118 verse 22 to 23. And that's in, actually you can read it from Mark 12 verse 10 right there. It says, have you not read, this is where he turns the tables. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here's what Jesus is doing. Remember, this is Passover week. Y'all try to paint the big picture with me, okay? I want you to see how beautiful this thing is that, that Mark is doing. This is Passover week and the Jews sing during Passover week what, what they call the Hallel. 
The Hallel was the, the psalms of Psalm 113 through 118. They were the salvation psalms. And they sung these psalms. Psalm 118 is the last psalm in the, in the Hallel. If you were to actually go back to Psalm 118 verse 26, you would see why they were singing in the triumphant, emperor, in the triumphant entry. Whenever Jesus entered in Jerusalem, Psalm 118.26 says what? This is why they were singing what they were singing whenever Jesus came into the city because this was their hymnal. This was their songbook. And so Psalm 118 is what they were singing. So Jesus, while their own Psalm 118 says, Oh, by the way, have you never read this scripture? And he goes back to Psalm 118 verse 22 and 23 that says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so here's what he wants them to do. He wants them to see that the stone is the sun. The ones that rejected it is you. The ones that are going to kill him is you. The stone is the sun. The stone is the Messiah. The stone is the prophet's message that's been declared that he's coming. The builders, remember the stone that the builders rejected. The builders are Israel's leaders. Rejected is concerning the persecuted messengers, the prophets, the son, and all that they killed and they sent away. The stone that the builders of the vineyard rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is the new first stone that is set in construction of new buildings for their foundation. It is the stone that holds everything else up. The foundation is built on this cornerstone. It's the security. It's what holds it together. And now the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, you ask me by what authority I do this. You ask me by what authority I come into this temple and I clean this thing out. You ask me by what authority I ride in here on a donkey and declare myself as king. You ask me by what authority I curse a fig tree and tell it it can never grow fruit again. Here's my authority. The stone that the builders of the vineyard, the ones that were supposed to be producing fruit, the ones that were supposed to be the kings over the people, the ones that were supposed to be teaching and praying in this house, the stone that the builders rejected just became the chief cornerstone. That's by what authority I do what I do. And this work is marvelous in the Lord's eyes, is what he says in verse 11. This was the Lord's doing. God did this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I love the way he lays this out. So now, they perceive that Jesus is talking about them. Look with me at Mark 12, verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against him. And so, remember, at first, you remember what they said at first when he told the story? At first, what should that owner do to these people? Kill those miserable wretches. They're worthless. Give it to somebody who will take this vineyard and do what they're supposed to do with it. But now let's look at Mark's, or at Luke's account and let's see where they change to after they perceive it. Luke chapter 20 verse 16. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Boy, my, how the tides have turned. 
we perceive now what the parable means. And because we understand that he's talking about me, now I look at this same story and I go, surely not. This word actually comes from a Greek word that means, I don't want to cuss in church, but it means H-no. It means absolutely not. It is a very strong negative word that's used in the Greek here. And while we translate it in the English Standard Version as surely not, it means there ain't no stinking way. That's what they say. They move from kill those wretches to there ain't no way, no way that this is ever going to happen. My, how the tides have turned. But they knew their history. This is why they started putting everything together. Look with me very quickly at Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23 through 27. Look at their history. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey, they did not incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, they went backward, not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them. Day after day I sent them. Remind you of anything? Remember the parable he just told? Day after day I sent them to you. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. You know what he says here? Every generation that went by, they did worse. That's the reason why the first one that come, they just beat him and sent him away shamefully. The second one that come, they smashed his head because every generation did a little bit worse. The third one that comes, they stoned him and they killed him. And so they did to all the rest that came along. And now go with me to Matthew 23, verse 29. This is the last scripture that I'll read today. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Remember, he's going through the woes just like Isaiah did. And so in Matthew 23, he moves on to the woes. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets. In other words, you have no hope unless I send you messengers. Church, I hope you're listening to me this morning. We have no hope unless he sends you messengers. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of, right, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of uh, Barakai, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Just a little history of the prophets. Isaiah, you know who he is? Guess what happened to him? The Israelites saw him in two. They took a saw and they cut him in two. That's what happened to Isaiah. That's how he died. That's the reason when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith some were sawn in two. 
By faith, some defeated lions. By faith, some were raised from the dead. But by faith, some were sawn in two. That's what happened to Isaiah and the Israelites did it. Jeremiah was stoned by the Israelites. Ezekiel died by the hands of an Israelite that he had rebuked for idol worship. Zechariah was stoned in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. They stoned him. He went to the temple because he thought that's where he'd be safe. When he got there, the people of God stoned him in the house of God. John the Baptist was beheaded by the king of the Jews, King Herod. And so when he tells this story, he's telling the story of their history and they knew it. So now we see, and they see, the owner is God, just like in Isaiah 5. The vineyard is the people of God. The tenants are the Jewish leaders, the ones responsible for guiding and tending and pruning God's people to produce fruit. The servants sent by the owner are the prophets, and the beloved son is Jesus, who they will kill and are already planning it right here in Mark chapter 12. And they will crucify him and throw him out of the vineyard. Where was Jesus crucified at? Outside the gates. And, the, and God will judge those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Jesus is going to be the chief cornerstone. The apostles' teaching will be the foundation. And all believers of Christ will be the vineyard that bears fruit for Almighty God. So we're always in. I love the way that Jesus did this. He asked a question in order to get them thinking. So I'm going to ask you just a few questions to get you thinking because we have to ask the question to ourselves, how does this apply to us today? We're not Jewish leaders, right? But you're the new vineyard. You're the ones that when the old tenants got thrown out, guess what? God gave the vineyard to you. But don't you know that you can do the same thing the old tenants did? Don't you know you're no different than they are? So the first question we always ask, my Wednesday night study group will know about this. First question, what does this teach me about God? What does this, what does this parable teach you about the owner? First thing, he's patient. He's very patient. He's long-suffering. He put you in the garden to produce fruit. Do you think He saved you just so you could be saved? There are too many Christians, guys. Too many, let me say it like this. Too many Christians that are just going about their daily life, living in this vineyard, not giving God His due, not giving God His fruit, but instead they're trying to take... They, they don't think that there's an owner of the vineyard. They think they're the owners of the vineyard. Right? And so I live my life the way I want to live, but I'm a Christian. You're no different than the tenants of this vineyard. I don't say that to condemn you this morning. I say that to warn you that if those miserable wretches were thrown out and destroyed, the cursed tree, the, the, the fig tree was cursed and never bear fruit again, do you not think it could happen to you? God puts you in the vineyard to bear fruit. The way you bear fruit is by hearing the word of God and the messengers that he sends. And you have one messenger that walks with you always. You say, oh, church ain't that important. I can be a Christian and not go to church. Keep going that way. Keep trying that. Keep doing things your way. Keep going your own path. Keep choosing your own things that you do and how you want to do it instead of listening to the word of God. And what it speaks, 
and producing fruit for him. Keep going that way. We'll see where that ends up for you. God is gracious. God is kind. God is loving. God is long-suffering. He gives us a share in all that is His. And when we are unfaithful, He sends servant after servant. I want you to notice something. What would have happened if just one of these servants had finally come and they said, you know what, we have messed up. What, what, what would have happened? The owner would have said, yeah, you have. But if you'll turn this thing around, I got a vineyard for you. And so I'm saying to you this morning that as he sends servant after servant after servant to you, he is long-suffering and his desire is not to cast you out the vineyard. His desire is to give you the vineyard. He said, little flock, do not fear. It is my Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what I want. But here's the last thing you learn about God in this parable. God's long-suffering has a limit. It has a limit. He's not going to be long-suffering forever. The Bible tells us that the Spirit of God will not strive with man always. Church, I'm pleading with you today. If you see part of these tenets in you, and it's easy for us to be just like those tenets to move to the other side and go, surely not. Surely not. But the truth of the matter is, Look at your life. God's long-suffering has a limit, but today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. If you will just humble yourself in front of Him and say, you're the owner, not me. You're the owner. And what you say goes, and I'm happy to take my 25%. (laughs) I'm happy to live in your goodness and enjoy your goodness and just follow you. The second question we ask ourselves on Wednesday nights, is there a sin to avoid? Is there a sin to avoid in this? Well, yeah, first sin is not bearing fruit. You need to avoid that sin. God put you in this garden for His glory. God put you there for His worship, for His praise, to live and reflect on His goodness, to be kind, gentle, forgiving, to minister to one another, to love one another. God is looking for fruit. And you are His vineyard and He's worthy of your fruit. The second sin to avoid is not listening to His servants. It's easy to serve God until He tells you something you don't want to hear about yourself. It's easy to say, I'm all about God until God starts getting in your business. Until God starts wanting to change things in your life. So my question is, are you willing to surrender whatever fruit He asks of you? When he comes looking for fruit, are you willing to surrender it? Are you, uh, let me ask you this. It's, it's getting clothing time coming up. It's uh, springtime and summertime approaching. And, and I'm not just going to pick on the women today, but I, I'm going to hit on them just a little bit. Some of y'all are going to have you short shorts and you, you're going to be advertising for too much longer. <laughs> what if God steps in and he says to you, this is not bringing me glory? I know some of you don't like it. Some of you looking at me right now with evil eyes. Don't shoot the messenger. I know they bashed his head in. I know they killed and stoned him. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just being honest with you. What if God steps into your life and he says, Hey, young lady, this does not bring glory to me. This is not producing fruit for me. 
Will you surrender and step back and go, you're the owner. And if this is something you want to change in my life, then I surrender to you. Or will you bow up and kill the messenger and rob God of the fruit that he's asking from you? Because see, that's something simple. That's not even a big thing. What about your lust, men? What about your anger? What about your forgiveness? Will you surrender forgiveness to him? What about your marriage? Will you surrender your marriage to him? Can't have this fruit, God. This costs me too much. This is too much work on my part. This vineyard's costing me too much. I can't, I can't do this. You can't have that part of my fruit, God. What about your time? Can God have some of your time? Can he have just a little bit of your time? Can he? What about your labor? Can he have just a little bit of your labor? If you're not willing to surrender the fruit to God, then you are no different than the first tenants that was in this vineyard before you. That's the truth of it. The last question, and I'm closing. Is there a promise to claim? Is there a promise for you to claim in this parable? Yeah. Yeah. That if you'll surrender to the owner and you'll build on the chief cornerstone, the vineyard is yours and all that is in it is yours. God is yours. Everything that He has is yours. See, here's the thing about it. These tenants, they're trying to keep something that they can never keep. How many of you are trying to keep something that you can never keep? I want you to think about your life right now, please. How many of you are trying to keep something in your life right now that you can never keep? Because it's not yours. It's coming to an end. You're building on everything this world has to offer and you're just like the tenants. You're looking back and you're going, but we're right in it. We're good with God. We're good with the owner. He says, no, you don't understand. You're trying to keep something that you can never keep. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but... The promise to claim is this, if you'll surrender and you'll fall on this stumbling block, there's another part of Luke that I'm not going to go to, you will be broken to pieces, but God will take those pieces and He will rebuild this thing in a way that produces fruit for Him, in a way that learns to honor and glorify Him, in a way that, learns, that, that teaches you that you get to keep the vineyard and everything in it, as long as you understand that He's the owner. And you're the tenant. Beautiful parable. I pray that you learn a lesson from the tenants of old. And that as you being the new tenants today, I pray that you don't make the same mistake they did because you're not exempt. I hope you know that.